The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Hello and welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program, July 22nd, 2020. That is this edition. We've got a great show for you, and it is a show that demonstrates our range. Oh, yeah, we got a little Neapolitan ice cream kind of a show here for you. And I think all strengths of the PX3 brand. Some might say that all three politics will be represented on this show today. There'll be minimal Kanye talk. Although, I will say Kim Kardashian West has released a statement about her wayward husband for whom uh, is... Possibly, likely, having a bipolar episode on Twitter. But just do yourself a favor. You want to go on over to Kim Kardashian's Instagram. And even the fact that she feels secure in posting a message like this on Instagram is its own tale to tell. Read that and tell me that that's not a presidential statement. I've said this for a long time. I will say it again, and it's going to be ridiculous until it's right. She's running for office, and I think anyone who doubts her will will not do so for long. But anyway, that's that's there. Minimal Kanye talk. It's a little bit in the in the in the middle segment here. Uh, uh, we're gonna break down why I think there are massive holes in the Trump twenty twenty campaign. We have an exclusive announcement from Andrew Heaton. He's got news to break and he chose the PX3 show to break it on. And we have a great interview. This is the, you know, we have the political campaign strategy segment. That's always a strength. We've got something a little silly, but serious with Andrew Heaton, and and then a fantastic interview about the decisions recently made by the Supreme Court, uh, where some of these cases are going to go from here, and whether or not conservatives should be happy with the justices they put on the court. But first... Let's see what happens. We have nothing to lose. You know the expression? What the hell do you have to lose? Americans were scared, though. I guess nearly 200 dead, 14,000 who are sick, millions, as you witnessed, who are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. The American people are looking for answers, and they're looking for hope. And you're doing sensationalism. That's really bad reporting. And you ought to get back to reporting instead of sensationalism.
A large part of why this election season has been awful, in my opinion, is that I haven't had much to talk about. As a blood-sucking Parasite Media member, we normally feed on events, rumor, and strategy. And thus far, we've seen very little of any of those things. While I can only scratch my head so loudly at the idea of Biden being rewarded for not doing anything, it is time for me to look across the aisle. Because we've gained a lot of new listeners over the last few months, and we haven't been able to do stuff like this in a while, let me add a little bit of a disclaimer. What is going to follow is me breaking down the Trump campaign. While obviously that's going to touch on what he has done as president, it will not be a value judgment on whether or not he has done a good or a bad job. A great campaign is able to paper over weaknesses and accentuate strengths. It is able to identify its opponent and depress that opponent's base while swaying independent voters toward the candidate. In short, politics is a very, very, very simple game. On a predetermined date, get more people into a booth to hit your button than your opponent's. All strategy comes from that. And with that, Let's say mean things about Trump 2020. The virus has reshaped this race. And I believe that politically, Trump has fundamentally mishandled how his campaign should run during it. Therefore, Donald Trump is losing this race. In fact, I don't know what bothers me more, that Biden has hidden his basement or that Trump hasn't made him pay for it. To be fair, unforced errors abounded in 2016 as well. But then the stakes were much lower. He could just show up on Fox and Friends the next day and launch another bombshell. The cringe could be salved in his supporters by the fact that the right people, namely liberals and media members, were the ones getting the angriest. Now he's the president. And a very rare problem has arisen. The basic crisis playbook is as follows. Talk calmly, talk often, take control, and offer hope. You know, like this. Uh, so we have been smart. We got hit worst because the virus was coming through Europe and nobody even told us, nobody even knew. Uh, but uh, we took the worst and we turned the curve and we are we have a better curve now than you see in many other states and certainly as the United States as a whole. So this, of course, is Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York. At the height of this crisis, Cuomo held an 80 percent approval rating. And it is in my opinion that that's because of these press conferences. Why is it because of the press conferences? Because I don't believe as governor he's done a good job at all. He's overseen a state that saw 34,000 people and counting die. 
Much of this because of his long-standing feud with the mayor of the city-state under his jurisdiction, which prevented a quicker shutdown, and a lethal choice to admit coronavirus patients back into nursing homes. In my opinion, Andrew Cuomo has done, by the numbers, the worst job of any governor in America on COVID. Maybe those numbers will come close to evening out. Maybe even in our most macabre scenario, he will have his title taken from him. But even with unacceptable triple-digit daily death totals coming out of Florida, Arizona, California, and Texas, it would still take near six months for them to even approach New York State. My point here isn't to destroy Cuomo, it's to show how a calm demeanor can soothe a populace in crisis. Trump would likely never get the fawning plaudits that Cuomo has gotten. But still, Trump's bickering with the White House press corps during his COVID press conferences and tweets that spanned from Joe Scarborough's dead intern to NASCAR did not project a man in control. This, of course, is Trump's go-to position as a fighter who will fight anyone. Well, America saw the enemy as COVID, and the rest of the chaos he was causing was avoiding the fight they wanted to see the president wage. Which brings me to my first major gripe. As deaths declined in the United States through May, Trump made a very crucial miscalculation that he is currently trying to reverse. He bet that America wanted a leader to reopen America. The America the way they remember it being. They wanted the old America back. A temporary nightmare known as COVID was something they wanted to wake up from. To dwell on this virus was to be a doomsayer like the scolds in the media or the pendants on Twitter shaming the maskless for retweets. Trump could lead the way to recovery the way he best knew how, by projecting he was already there. And from that decision, fundamentally, you can understand all the choices he made. The RNC had to have a crowd. The Trump rallies would come back. Sure, there's risk, but life has risk. Those willing to take the risks are the ones that built this country. And then, at his first big rally to show that the rubber could hit the road on this idea, reality struck. But it's not the uh, restart that Donald Trump had wanted to his uh, election campaign. His campaign had actually been 
promising or saying that there could be as many uh, as a million people had expressed an interest. They expected uh, so many people to turn up that the venue would be full. That held about 19,000 and that there could be as many as 40,000 outside uh, in an overflow area. And the president was going to address that area as well. But that didn't happen because it wasn't really needed. And uh, in fact, a, a local official says that uh, there were only about 6,200 people at that rally. As you mentioned, uh, as you guys heard from the show, I did in Tulsa people waiting in line at the Trump rally were concerned about COVID so if that's the case how many people that would otherwise be thrilled to go to a Trump rally said eh, I'll catch it on TV for all the sturm and drung about TikTok teens and K-pop stands a bunch of false ticket requests are only a problem if you don't have an overwhelming amount of people who legitimately want to come. And that's what happened in Tulsa. Trump 2020 misjudged its base and got embarrassed. Rumor is the same thing happened in New Hampshire at a rally that was scratched due to weather complaints. These mistakes are unforced errors. Because somebody made a call about the direction of the country and they were wrong. These mistakes have fed into the ultra-conservative strategy of Joe Biden, who has reaped the benefits of a standing weekly bet. Trump won't do anything positive by Friday. Pay the man in his basement. And that leads me to my second issue the Trump team's definition of Joe Biden. As Trump spoke to a mostly empty arena in Tulsa, I thought he actually had a clever framing of Joe Biden. Joe isn't radical. Joe is feeble. The real people you need to worry about are the progressives pushing his wheelchair. This highlights the obvious loss in Biden's mental cognition and exploits the uneasy balance that Joe has attempted to strike between the Bernie left and the Obama middle. For Joe to fight against this strategy, he either has to antagonize the left or make the middle nervous. And yet, during an interview last Sunday with Fox News' Chris Wallace, he took a different track. That Biden himself is the radical. It's gotten totally out of control, and it's really because they want to defund the police, and Biden wants to fund, defund no, the he, police. Sir, he does not. Look, he signed a charter with Bernie Sanders. I will get that one, just like I was right on the mortality rate. Did you read the charter that he agreed to? It says to nothing about the, defunding the oh, police. Oh, really? It says abolish. It says a fund. Let's go. All right. Give, well, me, you, give me the charter, please. All right. Chris, you've got to start studying for these. He interviews. says defund the police. He says defund the police. They talk about abolishing the police. They talk about illegal I, I, aliens I look, I look pouring. Forward, I look forward to seeing that. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is not a radical. And to say so only serves to make him look actually sharper than he's been in this campaign. Joe Biden isn't Hillary. You can't paint him as the same kind of liar that you painted Hillary as. Why? 
because Hillary, with her multiple accents and Clintonian triangulation, reads like a liar. Joe is Joe. Joe is docile. Joe is past his prime. Joe can't control his own family. What makes anyone think that he can control the explosive popularity and charisma of the progressive left and their hold on the media? If Trump were smart, he'd run against AOC. Praise her ability to explode on the scene and portray her as dangerous, not simply because of her ideas, but because Biden will be an empty vessel for them. You think you're getting one thing, but if there's one thing you know about Joe Biden, he will always cave and give you another. From this, you can exploit every decision that Biden has made and then gone back on in government. And when you spend as much time in the Senate as Biden has, there's a massive treasure trove of those. But you can't say he's radical. The more Trump does that, the less Biden even has to defend it, let alone try to wrest the attention of his campaign away from other rising stars in his own party. Now, there is, like I mentioned before, a sense that things are being retooled in Trump 2020. Obviously, they fired or demoted, whatever, the old campaign head, Brad Parscale. They got a new one in there now. Yesterday, Trump restarted his COVID press conferences, and he spoke calmly and didn't fight with reporters. He even pulled his mask out of his pocket to show reporters that he had it on him. He's also due to roll out new campaign advertisements. And maybe those will be a little bit more targeted toward things that Biden will actually have to respond to and not just sit in his basement drumming his fingers waiting for Inauguration Day. But if he does not fix these issues, chief among them, owning the coronavirus recovery and defining Joe Biden as feeble, it's going to be harder for him to win in November. Friends, we are here for a momentous occasion. Uh, rarely do we break news on PX3, uh, and yet we are going to here. And so I would like to welcome our longtime friend, the host of the Political Orphanage, Andrew Heaton. Welcome, sir. Hello, Justin. Pleasure to be back. Thank you for having me. I didn't realize how much I wanted to have this moment, but the awkward question of so you have something to announce when both of us know what you have to announce is what i'm going yeah. to say so i've heard that you have something to announce i i do justin you know uh there's been a lot of talk about running for president third party uh and uh, that was recently exacerbated by the fact that kanye west decided to run for president and is in fact now registered on the ballot in my home state a lot of people were worked up about that a lot of people were approaching me saying uh, we 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 really want you to to be a part of the the 2020 conversation, and uh, I I thought about it very hard, 
and uh, I am not running for president, but I am running for vice president. Oh, I am, my I am, God. I, uh, I am reconstituting the Whig Party, <laughs> and I am running for vice president on it. We, we are not fielding a presidential candidate this year because you'd have to be crazy to run for president. <laughs> and, uh, and, if, and if by some fluke you win, you have to do a lot of work. I don't want to do that. So uh, I'm the top of the ticket. I'm just running for vice president. And, uh, uh, you know, really looking forward to contributing to that. Um, I, I don't I don't think Joe Biden has picked a vice presidential running mate yet. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that I might be able to slide into that. Uh, same with Kanye. I'd, I'd be happy to do both. And, I, and I'll run on the Whig Party regardless. Gotcha. So you will stay true to the Whig Party platform. Now, it's been a minute for America uh, in, yeah. in their their uh, relationship to the Whig Party. Can you can you describe the Whig Party platform for us? Sure. So the Whig Party has been on an interregnum for about 166 years. We decided to take a break. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and, and you just kind of do some serious thinking. Uh, the old Whig platform, I think, had a lot to do with like tariffs and industry. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the new platform, I, I'm working out the details right now. Sure. But, uh, just a few of the ideas I have. Uh, one, I, I want to move uh, the, the borders of the United States north by about 50 miles on both ends. To, to get rid of the hot, humid places and absorb parts of Canada. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm working on, you know, I know that uh, Joe Biden unveiled his environmental program a few months ago. I've been talking to my my campaign consultants, and I, I think my own plan is, ra rather than being environmentalist or, or, or you know, pro-industry or whatever, I'm just going to pick uh, allied and enemy biomes and allied and enemy species. So forests are a good biome. Deserts are stupid. We're going to get rid of them. We're going to plant trees. <laughs> Uh, Dogs and chimps, allied species, hornets, wasps, enemy species. Gone. So, uh, uh, so now yeah. you've, you've you've defined the. If you are for forests, uh, uh, yes. then you should be on the Whig Party platform, and you should be voting yeah. for Andrew Heaton for vice president. If you are for deserts, then not so much. Uh, uh, just just know that yes. that Heaton's coming for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very much in favor of that. Yeah, and I said, like, you know, and like, like just. Rather than trying to build a wall around Mexico, just move the border. Let I don't care. Like let them have part of Texas, and then uh, and then we'll get some of that nice. Like like I, I haven't been to Vancouver. It looks awesome. Let's take that. So wait, hold on. I, I I do have some questions here for you because I am okay. I am from South Florida. It sounds like uh, now we would be a part of unincorporated. A, a random territory if if you're yeah, moving yeah 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 so i i think like now you know i'm, I'm just shooting from the hip here i need to talk to my advisors <laughs> on this one but i think i think florida would all become a part of the florida keys like the all of florida would go would revert back to territorial status okay and we'd give your electoral votes to uh, to be honest with you with somebody a little bit more stable like patrick stewart mm. or something like i i think we'll just yeah we'll just hand those votes over to you know betty white or patrick stewart or i don't know maybe uh, maybe uh, jimmy carter everybody likes him right I mean, uh, yeah, for for now, I guess. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know exactly how long he's going to be a steward. As somebody who's from Florida, you get used to treasuring your elders when you have them. So uh, uh, we we don't we don't quite know how long Jimmy's going to be here. Now, all right. In all seriousness, this is something that you've actually thought a, a, a oh, yeah. way more about than anybody who would imagine running on the Whig Party for vice president would be. When did you start thinking about doing this? Because by the way, uh, guys, I know that Heaton is a comedian and does funny bits on his show 
this is for real. You are you you've sent me drafts of press releases. Uh-huh. Like you are trying to get ballot access. Uh, 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 uh-huh. uh, how long have you been thinking about doing this? You know, okay, so I was thinking about, uh, I mean, there's a long tradition of comedians running for president, uh, and and so I was thinking about it, like, as early as 2019, and then I was like, you know what, if I wind up being the, you know, vote Harambe spoiler vote that, like, you know, takes (laughs) 12,000 people and throws the election, I don't want to be that guy, which is part of the reason that I'm running for vice president rather than president, so that I I can't screw any of that up. Uh, Specifically for vice president, about three months now, and uh, I've been looking into it. I can get on some ballots. It's still possible to do it. I can get on the Louisiana ballot. I'm gonna have to find. Uh, I'm gonna have to find electors for the Whig Party that will agree to be electoral delegates in the event that I win any votes. Uh, and there's a handful of other states. Apparently, I don't know if you knew this, Justin. Very difficult to get on, uh, on on state ballots for president or vice president. Yeah. Slightly more complicated by the fact that there's not anybody at the top of the ticket. Uh, but uh, but pretty sure I can get on uh, Louisiana. Uh, working on some other ones, uh, possibly Guam, which I am aware has no electoral votes. And <laughs> I've had a little bit of interest from Manitoba, which I'm, I'm confused sure. by because I'm pretty sure that's Canadian. Yeah, but but at the, at the same time, they they might be. Yeah, uh, I'll take what I. Yeah, yeah, they they might be a new part of uh, what you're looking at uh, uh, if you are indeed moving yeah. the borders north. So, uh, uh, all right, it, realistically though. What do you have to do? Like it, it, you are trying to get ballot access. What needs to happen? Let's focus on Louisiana. What sure. do you need to do to get ballot access in Louisiana? Yeah. So, so Louisiana, I, I looked into this. Louisiana seems to be the easiest state to get ballot access. So, uh, most states are uh, pretty obviously trying not to let anybody run. So, I'll say like like to back up. Like it, it's. Uh, very, very easy to get on, on uh, the the Federal Election Commission, the FEC. You basically just send in a PDF that's yeah. like, hey, I'm running for vice president or for most people, I'm running for president, you know, for the, you know, the I, I don't know, the the add more beers in Montana party or the Freedom and Soil party or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, that, that that that's not incredibly difficult. I don't know that there's even a filing fee with it. Uh, Louisiana is not bad. I think Louisiana, it's like uh, like a five hundred dollar filing fee uh, or two thousand signatures. Now I'm confident I have at least twenty thousand supporters of uh, of crypto wigs in Louisiana <laughs> that when they realize the party has come back will come out. But just due to the logistics of trying to get that crypto wig support, uh, I, I might have to resort to the filing fee. So Louisiana is a little bit early easier, but where basically you as I as I understand it, as long as I do this by I think it's like August twentieth, send in the uh, uh, send in the form, send in the money, uh, I'm on the ballot, right? Uh, Louisiana is not that difficult. A lot of other states, far more difficult. They always grandfather in the two big parties. Uh, I'm running fifth party. Uh, I'm not even <laughs> third party. I don't think I'm even technically fourth party. Uh, so it's a little bit harder for me. But if you're if you're a Republican or Democrat, you're just automatically in it, right? For everybody else, what a lot of states do is they they go. You have like every every election, you have to get you know. 8,000 signatures or something. They give a very, very onerous amount because they don't actually want them to run. They don't want them on the ballot. Uh, Some of them have very steep filing fees. And then a lot of the states have just very early filing uh, deadlines, which I'm not. I'm not honestly that angered by it. I I realize I'm pulling a dark horse candidacy by running for vice president without a running mate uh, come August of 2020. I'm I'm doing late in the game. I I don't blame them for the the filing deadline. Yeah, come 2020, I should at least be on one state ballot and uh, am hoping to get an electoral vote. 
So how does that happen? Oh, you know what? I how can try you... and get on New Hampshire, too, because don't they do electoral vote by electoral vote? Maybe I could grab one. You you might. Yeah. You know, that that, that that might be the case. So wait a minute. So so how do you get an electoral vote? How many, how many uh, people in Louisiana? So right now, you are running a very Louisiana-centric campaign. At this point, yeah, you should really. A lot of cigars, really, a lot of drinking. Yeah, you should really <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna be dialed go in. Go down there and wrestle an alligator, huh? You should really be dialed in on all these local Louisiana issues. So let let's see if we can coach you up a little bit. What what is yeah. uh uh who's your favorite uh uh LSU quarterback? Oh man, definitely Mark Scoresberg. I think he's been a, he's done a fantastic <laughs> job, and uh, I you know I it would it would be great if if uh, uh the other football teams even have a quarterback right they don't even have quarterbacks from what i can tell they just have uh they just have skinny dudes looking to run fast unlike mark scoresberg he's he's pretty fantastic there we go good answer good answer thank you uh, uh, yeah. where wait hold uh, on can i revise that can i revise sure. that yeah Justin? yeah can, can you can you pitch that question to me again sure uh uh, uh candidate heaton who's your favorite lsu quarterback Justin, that's a great question. And what makes great questions is great education. And the Whig Party has a strong, <laughs> strong background in, in strengthening American institutions, least of which are the uh, the 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 public uh, public schooling sector. And, you know, I, I bring a lot of ideas to that table in terms of both strengthening public schools and expanding charter schools so that everybody has a fair shake and a fair shot. And maybe they'll grow up to be quarterback. Uh, uh, candidate Heaton allegedly actor Nick Cage bought a house in uh, New Orleans because it was famously haunted and then sold the house within 24 hours because he became convinced that it was indeed haunted. Uh, what do you have to say to Nick Cage on behalf of the citizens of Louisiana? Uh, so first of all, I'd say, Nick Cage, if you still have an address in Louisiana and you would like to be an electoral <laughs> delegate for the Whig Party, I think that that would be pretty kick ass, and I am very open to letting you do that. So uh, that's that's fine right there. In fact, I'll go out on a limb right now. If I get elected vice president, technically I can't appoint any cabinet heads because I'm not president. I'm not sure how that would work. I assume whoever got the most presidential votes becomes president. Uh, but I'll put in a good word for you for secretary of agriculture. Uh, so I'll, I'll do what I can, or maybe, maybe an ambassador, right? Uh, the other thing I'll say is this. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not huge on regulation, but I'll, I'll say – Right now, I'll tell all of your listeners and Nick Cage, I will firmly be on the side of regulating ghosts to proper areas. We will pass legislation, <laughs> sweeping national legislation that says where ghosts are zoned and where they're improperly zoned and, you know, where the there's designated poltergeist areas and also probably even uh, designated time. You know, like you know how like fraternities they, they're like, hey, you can be loud up till 10 p.m. We're sure. going to do that with ghosts, damn it. And we're going to make a change. You want to know but what? But also I want to tell you this. For all the ghosts listening, we believe in ghost education in the Whig Party. <laughs> if you, if you want to, if you're, if you're trying to, you know, get get forward in the ghost afterlife, well, you know, boy howdy, there's a lot of burned down colleges from the Civil War that we're willing to pump ectoplasm into, and and I, I, I think you should you should probably convince people to do voter fraud since you might well be on the rolls in Louisiana and come vote for me. That might be my new electoral strategy in Louisiana. Solving problems that have literally haunted America for its entire existence. Andrew Heaton for vice president. I feel like we're already, we're already rolling here. And can I, can I tell you my other, this is my other, uh, my, my big strategy right here, Justin, this is the okay. linchpin of the Heaton for, for vice president campaign Okay, is I, I know I'm coming in fifth party, 
Yeah. And I know I'm coming in three months before the election. And those yeah. are some pretty steep odds. They are. Again, on top of the fact that I'm not running with the presidential candidate. These are I, I realize the odds are stacked against me. And that means thinking outside the box. And yeah. so rather than focusing on sheer bulk of voters like these factory line industrialized candidates, what I'm going to do is focus on getting endorsements from all the living former vice presidents, Joe Biden. Uh, Mike Pence probably won't because he's currently vice president, but Joe yeah. Biden's a former vice president. Yeah. Dan Quayle, I think, is a real strong possibility you that he, he does support me over Pence. If Mondale is alive, I'm going to drive out to Minnesota, see if I can't talk to him and uh, get that get that VP nomination. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Biden's not even running for vice president, so it's no skin off his nose. He really ought to be gentlemanly and just toss it to me. I, I think that that's a very realistic aim. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, for seriously... Again, you are uh -huh. doing this seriously. Are you I, planning I, I, on yeah. doing any campaign stops or will this be a totally virtual enterprise? You know, I'm not sure yet. I mean, it, it'll depend partly on how many states I'm able to get on the ballot for. Like if it's just Louisiana, sure, why not? Let's go down to New Orleans and do a do a wig party convention down there. New Orleans is pretty fun. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I see it is, is hot and humid. So maybe it'll kill COVID. I don't know how that works. We'll, we'll definitely have masks and whatnot, you know, but. Uh, yeah, if, if I could, you know, normally uh, outside of a pandemic, I would definitely use this as a, an excuse to travel around the country and uh, hang out and shake hands and meet people. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'll probably at least do some stuff. There'll be something. There will be some kind of physical event, uh, even if it's just in your uh, the yard of your parents home where you're staying currently in Oklahoma. Yes. Well, I'm going to be back in L.A. here in a couple of weeks uh, at, at the I guess I'll make that the designated wig headquarters. Uh, out there in Los as Angeles. nature as nature intended the the yeah, wig the and, wig uh, headquarters out uh, there no, in LA. I'll be I'll be shuffling around um I'll do yeah it again it'll depend where I'm able to where I'm able to actually be on the ballot uh but once that's established I'll do that I probably won't make it out to Guam because even if I get on the ballot they don't have electoral votes and I do have to be strategic sure. in my thinking here uh in terms of trying to to make the most impact uh and uh uh, yeah, and then, you know, for other for other states, what I might do is see if I can't run for mayor simultaneously. And uh, if uh, you know, if if, if, I, if I'm not on a ballot in your state uh, and you're one of those cities that elects like dogs or toddlers, yeah. I will. I'm happy to, to wage a relentless negative ad campaign against them in hopes that I can steal <laughs> that away from. them. Well, you know, look, when it comes to Guam. I mean, the Whig Party's been gone for 160 years, so obviously you guys are used to playing the long game. Who's to say that uh -huh. November has to really even be any kind of deadline for you? Like, this can just be kind of a rolling campaign. What, I mean, you can you can still show up in Guam in December. I'm sure it's lovely. Well, see, I, you're you're getting see, I you're a smart man, Justin, because you're seeing you're seeing into the crystal ball of my my deep plans for this. <laughs> uh, I had thought about. I had thought about running for vice president in 2021 to throw everybody off mm. uh, because everybody mm. right now is focusing on the 2020 thing. But if I if I just decided to hold some sort of national referendum outside of it, that would be impressive. The other thing I'm thinking about doing, Justin, is uh, at the conclusion of this one, if I don't win for vice president, which, you know, I think let's say 50 50 right now that I get it. Yeah. Uh, if I don't win vice president, what I'm thinking about doing is the very next day preemptively announcing that I'm running for vice president as a Republican in 2024 and 
as a Democrat in 2028. Just committing gotcha. to both of those gotcha. in, in advance. But I, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens depending on how well I do at the national election this time around. Well, I mean, look, uh, I'm glad that there are not many current Whig Party members because you might have lost a few in, in announcing that you were already eyeing other party membership. Yeah. So it's good that you're getting that kind of treason out of the way now before yeah. everybody starts jumping on this bandwagon. And I've, I've already kind of worked this out with my campaign advisors because there used to be a group called the the Modern Whig Party, but I think they were just a website. I don't think they had any ballot access or anything. So if if they contest it, they've now been like absorbed into the American Veterans and Eagle Party or whatever. Uh, but if it's contested, we'll just we'll just spin off and become the Rogue Whig Party, and uh, and and then I'll I'll dominate that with an iron fist. All right. So again. We're going we're gonna to make sure that everybody knows that this part is not a joke. You are really doing this. You do really want support. You do really want anybody that is in Louisiana or any other place that you have uh, a ballot access that would be willing to serve as an elector uh, uh, if indeed you are able to gain anything. So if people want to get in touch with you on this, uh, where do they get in touch with you for your campaign for vice president? You know what? I'll go ahead and I'm not afraid. I'll give my email address. It's Andrew at MightyHeaton.com. Send me an email. <laughs> we'll get this party rolling. We're going to reconstitute the Whig party. We're, we're uh, I'll say this, you know, I run a VP. I'm not looking to be a spoiler on the presidential thing. So, yeah. you know, if you're in a swing state and you, you, and you only have the option of voting for me, don't do it. But uh, if you're in Louisiana, which I don't think is a swing state, how did it vote last time, Justin? Uh, no, it's been solidly red for a little bit now. Perfect. We'll spoil the f out of that. Yeah. Well, for me, regardless, <laughs> if you're in Louisiana. And uh, yeah, so yeah, Andrew, Andrew at MightyHeaton.com. You're in Louisiana. You want to join my campaign staff? Go for it. If you're in another state and you figure we could, you know, at least have a campaign event or something, or you want to be an honorary Whig delegate and uh, try and, you know, bust into the, 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 local, uh, the local deal, or for that matter, if it gets kicked to Congress and I somehow pick up an electoral vote, making me wait no i can't i wouldn't be able, you know what we'll work it out we'll work it it's out. fine Contact the down the road down yeah. the road if yeah. you're interested this is a call to the grassroots organizers around uh -huh. the country if indeed you have found yourself stifled by the big money organized campaigns of kanye west and michael bloomberg then uh now you finally have your man in andrew heaton uh let's actually uh, uh while i have you here uh, I, I would like your opinion on the erstwhile birthday party candidate Kanye West, who uh, 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 you know came out on the scene, had his first and only, possibly only campaign rally uh, uh, last weekend. Have you have you followed much of this? Not a whole lot. I reached out to them to let them know I was thinking about running for vice president. So if they wanted to do a unity ticket, a la William Jennings Bryan, they should contact me. Uh, and they have not gotten back to me. So no. I haven't done a whole lot about that. I did see that he registered in Oklahoma uh, and uh, he, he might well he might well get 5%. Like Joe Exotic got like a really high level of votes in Oklahoma for governor here four years ago. We got like 15% or something. Like it was a crazy it amount. Was, it was so a ridiculous well. amount. Although apparently I found out that that was just in the libertarian primary that he got that he got like, you know, 12% oh, or something like that. So okay. it wasn't, yeah, all right. it wasn't, it wasn't quite, uh, uh, for the general in the same way that Tiger King, uh, uh, seemed to seem to portray it. But that being said, uh, are you going to be able to get on the ballot in your, uh, uh, the, the, the state that raised you in Oklahoma? I, I, it depends on the support from your listership, there Justin, we go. because I think to get on the ballot, 
in Oklahoma takes something like $5,000. And my campaign is is a little bit shy of the 5,000 at the moment, having only started 15 minutes ago. So uh, <laughs> that was that one's going to be a little bit harder to do. I, I'm looking to get on ballots that take less than $1,000. Uh, and uh, so Oklahoma is a little bit, little bit high shelf for old Heaton here. Now I, I'd say something that would be real gentlemanly okay. of Kanye West would be if he wanted to fund my vice presidential campaign. You know, kind of like when you're in high school and you're running for for uh, president of the student body, but you don't vote for yourself because that would be kind of crass. Sure. I think it's the same deal supporting candidates and other parties. Uh, it'd be, you know, if, if Mike Pence wanted to endorse me, I think that would be very telling of uh, him being a gentleman, uh-huh. uh, even though he's running for vice president. Uh, as far as as far as Kanye West goes, I, I don't know. I have one of two minds, Justin. I haven't followed yeah. it super closely. I mean, my guess is that he got high and wanted publicity, just kind of in general. It was just like, this would be fun. I want some attention, right? That's yeah. my, my main guess is that he didn't, really orchestrated um secondary guess yeah if he wanted to throw the election to trump like if he's deep down a maga guy and he wanted to like actually run in swing states and like like run as a third party candidate uh, as a very popular dude that gets a lot of media attention and happens to be african-american i think he could actually do quite a lot of damage to the biden campaign so i i, I there's a little bit of a conspiratorial edge to me on him i as a longtime kanye uh watcher i i, I will say that uh, while he's a very creative and, and undeniably uh, charismatic figure that people can't turn away from, uh, he does not quite seem to me to be the guy that has the, the 4D chess kind of philosophy of like, here's how I will swing. Yeah. I will swing the, the election. Uh, that being so you're, said, you're, you're, you're more on the, he got high and thought it would be a fun thing to get like, like not enough people dude, were talking about him that particular dude, you weekend. You have to listen. There's like a, the hour tape of his only campaign rally is unlike any presidential campaign rally you have ever heard in your life. And I've heard boring politicians. I've heard weird politicians. It's very, very strange to hear somebody that is obviously an undeniable stage presence like Kanye West uh, say things like, well, you know, I got addicted to Percocets after I started getting plastic (laughs) surgery. And my favorite thing to do when I was high on Percocets was driving around my Calabasas neighborhood uh, also, <laughs> I became pro-life when I wanted my uh, then-girlfriend, now-wife Kim Kardashian to abort our child. Uh, uh, wow. So, and then I realized that I was trying to kill my own daughter, and my mom defended me from my own dad who wanted to abort me, and then he starts crying on stage. Uh, it is... It is if you If you watch a lot of this stuff and you're in political media, you have to watch a lot of extraordinarily repetitive, extraordinarily boring political yeah, this, rhetoric. This, this sounds like like Kanye West's id took some steroids and ran for president. And I mean, that is the only part of this operating. And that's something that I know you will appreciate because you are very uh, aware of, of, of the political spectrum and you know yeah. how far these things kind of, uh, uh, although I guess they are technically libertarian philosophies, but he has one moment where he's like, everybody in prison for marijuana gets out day one. Like, that's it. That's my promise. Also, uh, uh, and that's a very progressive idea now, uh, similarly uh, leads the crowd in a chant of guns don't kill people, people kill people. (laughs) So, like, a literal NRA call and response. I was about to say, he could have run for president as a libertarian. He might have, he might well have stormed uh, uh, the the well-esteemed Joe Jensen had had he got his act together about six months ago. I'm saying if, if 
you know, uh, uh, some of the Republican retreads are charismatic enough to capture the libertarian uh, ballot access. Certainly, Kanye would have been able to if if he had put his mind to it. Although I don't think that his political philosophy can be contained uh, uh, with with any yeah. with any one one particular platform. Uh, you know what? I agree. Uh, and I've, I've, I've been to a couple of, uh, I've been invited to, to do comedy at a couple of uh, libertarian state party conventions. And I suspect that the delegates who are otherwise normally borderline Jesuits about libertarian philosophy and extremely <laughs> doctrinaire, if presented with Kanye West would go, you know what? Let's see what happens. I think they would be like, "This is going to be an interesting ride." Let's just uh, maybe, uh, maybe so. We'll Let's see. just do it. Yeah, I, I think no. I think that that could have happened. Yeah. What do we have to lose? All right. So uh, Andrew at mightyheaton.com again. And Heaton is a funny guy. This is not a joke. We really, really want people in these states to see whether or not we can get ballot access. And to be totally honest uh-huh. with everybody, I've long wanted to do a either like how a bill becomes a law kind of running segment. And I think this is a great example. We always want to know how the mechanisms of government work. We are going to find out how that happens via Heaton's campaign for president, vice president, sorry, Heaton's campaign for vice president president, uh, that begins today here on the PX3 program. Uh, Good luck, sir, in your campaign. You have my... Uh, uh, support. Maybe I, I need to move to Louisiana to make sure that this vote uh, uh, will count for you. I know that we have many listeners down there that would pledge their support. So uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for choosing this platform to announce your candidacy. Uh, the final word is yours. Uh, thank you very much, Justin. It's my pleasure to be here. I just want to end by saying God bless America and the parts of Canada I intend to annex. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to keep it short and sweet today. We have been on a roll on this show. I'm feeling good about this content. I'm feeling good about you guys supporting this content. We continue to march forward. So, of course, you guys know TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That's where you can support the show. $3 Club gets... The two bonus episodes, one on Monday, one on Thursday. Uh, anybody at any level, including the simple $1 Big Tent tier, you got $1 to spare, then you have the custom RSS feed. That means that you get the show sometimes hours before you would on the free feed that goes through Spotify and Apple. And that's not because I hold anything back. It's just a quicker way to get it based on the way those systems work. So head on over there. TakePoliticsSeriously.com On this particular episode, though, I want to do something that we haven't done in a little bit. And that is, if there has been anything you've particularly enjoyed about the show lately, and we've gotten some very good feedback on some of our interviews then I would encourage you to go to the podcast catcher of your choice, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, and review the show. 
Now's the time. Been a little bit. So uh, if there is an opportunity for you to just say, oh, love the interview about ranked choice voting. I love the interview about uh, 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 Trump using rhetoric or, or a point that you got from it. Like that, that I didn't realize until I listened on PX3 that the president didn't have a direct line to the people until the invention of the radio and television and that everything went through Congress before. All those little tidbits of information, a point that I've made, a point that I just made about President Trump's campaign, about Kim Kardashian running for president, whatever it is, go review the show right now. If you've had one of those, go review the show and let's help spread the word on this as we get ever closer to election day. As always, I thank you guys so much for your support. Take politics seriously. Dot com is where you can support monetarily, but for free, you can do so by reviewing the show this week. Thank you. Our next guest on today's episode is Tom Clark. He is a Charles Howard Candler professor of political science at Emory University. His research focuses on judicial decision-making in the United States, as well as policing and criminal justice. He's recently published a book on the history of constitutional decision-making by the Supreme Court, and he co-directs the Politics of Policing Lab at Emory University. If you like what you hear, you can follow him on Twitter, Tom underscore S underscore Clark. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thanks for having me. The Supreme Court has uh, recently wrapped up its session here, and it was a bit of a surprising uh, one, at least in terms of the media. Uh, of all the cases decided, was there any case that you specifically found to be surprising? So I think that the most surprising case was the uh, abortion case out of Louisiana um, for many of the reasons that people in the media um uh, latched on to, it was, it was uh, sort of striking to see John Roberts' position, uh, not entirely surprising, but I would describe it as striking. And uh, uh, why, why was it, uh, I mean, it, it seems like John Roberts has become somebody who is, uh, you know, obviously he is, he is a 5-4 swing vote, but, but feels like he has to default to a, a certain position when they are in split decisions. Is that something that he's had a history of? Is that growing in terms of his decision-making or would that even be an accurate description to begin with? You know, I don't know that it's an accurate description to begin with. And, and the reason I don't think so is because while he might have come down on what you might think of as the more liberal side of a number of cases this year, compared with past years, we're seeing different kinds of cases come to the court. And so it's not as though you're seeing him come on the come down on the liberal side to the left of more of more traditionally liberal justices, but rather we're seeing a change in the cases that are coming to the court, which makes it kind of hard to know whether or not the justices are changing at all, or whether it's just that the issues and the and the particular legal questions that are being asked to resolve are different this year. Um, the thing that's striking to me about the abortion case is that this is a case very, very similar to one in which he, in the past, came down in a different way. 
a losing side in the past uh, he had, but it's different his position today than it was when they heard a very similar case in the recent past. And so why I think that's striking is, is not just that he's sort of following precedent or adhering to a past decision with which he didn't agree, but that it's in the context of abortion, which for the conservative legal movement is sort of the signal issue. That's the big one for them. And so this, this was an opportunity to make a relatively large change in the law. Um, and so the reason I say it's striking but not surprising is that it sort of signals that the conservative hope of a major overhaul of abortion precedent might not be on the horizon. And, and that was a major part of a John Roberts appointment when he did get appointed by George W. Bush and then his ascension to chief justice after Rehnquist left the bench. Uh, uh, is there any sense of why that would be the case or is it not surprising that somebody like like John Roberts would, uh, uh, you know, start to not uh, signal the way that he would otherwise that people might expect him to in terms of the conservative judicial movement? Yeah, you know, I think that one of the things about John Roberts that is important to keep in mind is that he he has been in the past and continues to be today someone who he has. Uh, an agenda and he has a conservative perspective, but he also has an appreciation for the role of the courts in more political debates. And as a consequence, he doesn't have a, a, a track record of being the judge who goes out and, and pushes for sort of very firebrand kinds of decisions. He's not typically been associated with wanting to make giant leaps in the law. Um, and so it's striking because his vote in the in the in the more recent in the in the past case that the Louisiana case was similar to um, suggested that he was open to a more radical change in the law. But but what we see in this year's case is that when he had the opportunity to be decisive on the matter, he opted in favor of a more incremental approach to changing uh, abortion law as opposed to a more radical one. And so while that is the big issue for the conservative legal movement, there is division within uh, conservative legal think thought. Or there is division within conservative legal thought uh, about how fast to move, so to speak, how radical to make the decisions, um, as opposed to a more sort of incremental approach to to um, to changing abortion law. One of the other cases that didn't seem to go the way that many conservatives wanted it to was the ruling on DACA. Uh, and that was another John Roberts 5-4 decision. Uh, it, it Was that surprising? Because it seemed like at least most of the court watchers thought that that was going the other way before the result came in. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think it is definitely surprising um, to see the decision come out 5-4 against the Trump administration. But again, to me, this is an example of a kind of case where the, the particular facts of, uh, of the dispute that came before the court are very different from the kinds of things that we've seen in the past. So in particular, with the Trump administration, what we've seen is what you might describe as fairly reckless 
um, policymaking in the administration. And sort of the key issue in the DACA case wasn't really the ending of DACA and whether the executive has the discretion to end DACA, but it was whether the Trump administration followed the proper procedures. Um, and what we saw Roberts decide uh, was that, no, in fact, the court had gone, or the, the administration had gone in a sort of reckless uh, way in violation of the procedures that they have to follow. And so the Roberts' decision, while somewhat surprising because it resulted in at least the temporary upholding of DACA, yeah. what his decision was was that if they want to do this, they have to do it in a, a more equitable way that, or in a, in a way that more adequately follows the procedural guidelines that constrain executive policymaking. And so in my read, sort of Robert's decision there was not really all of that liberal. Right? It is not a decision that can, is out to really significantly constrain executive power. Um, it's merely saying the executive has to at least follow the rules and procedures um, that, that govern this. Yeah, uh, and otherwise it, it's something that is vulnerable to a ruling like that, and that's why you follow the rules. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you think about how Roberts might might see the particular issue in this case, if this were a liberal president um, showing up before the court with um, some kind of executive um, decision that they had made, you know, in violation of the Administrative Procedures Act, you you could very well imagine the other four justices saying, "Wow, well, whoa, whoa, you have to stop and follow the rules." Here. And so I, I see Roberts' decision as not being really a sort of partisan question about the, the policy issue, but really being about what's his view on whether decision makers in the government have to follow the rules and the law. And, and that's an issue where I think we've traditionally seen Roberts be fairly even handed. You know, he, he might have a conservative viewpoint on what the right outcomes are. But he certainly has historically suggested that, you know, the rules are the rules. And if you play by the rules, then then, you know, then that's that's much more acceptable than if you don't. Two of the biggest stories since Donald Trump's election were the appointment of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh to the bench. Kavanaugh, of course, fairly controversially, or at least in terms of a loud confirmation hearing uh, how what what did we learn? Uh, what have we learned about Gorsuch as he has been on the bench, and what did we learn about Kavanaugh as he is on the bench? Yeah, you know, I think that um, we have learned that Gorsuch, Gorsuch in particular, is not as dogmatically ideological as one might have expected, um, and so his his decision in the um, Indian Territory case from Oklahoma is is an example of that, but um, you know he he ultimately sided well, with the yeah. majority in the in the presidential. Yeah, power actually, cases. sorry, I, I do I do want to stop you there because I find this Oklahoma case fascinating. If we if we could spend a, a couple seconds on that, if you could just explain to the listeners what this case was and what the ruling was, because it seemed fairly remarkable to me. Yeah, so the case is actually a, a sort of. Interesting one, especially from the, the perspective of uh, 
constitutional history nuts. So the 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 origins of this case really lie in the the establishment of Indian reservations in eastern Oklahoma, uh, what, what is now eastern Oklahoma, after the sort of Creek Nation um, uh, Native Americans were forced from from East Coast West, uh, in particular. Um, and so the the treaty that was signed between the United States government and the Native Americans established the the Native American reservation and and said you will ha- you the Native American nation will have sovereignty over this area. In other words, you are in charge here and we will not come in and make laws and try to control what you do and establish, you know, institutions of government that, that this is a, a sovereign territory, so to speak. Um, and there is a case, there, is, there was this case that was essentially asking whether or not um, the state of Oklahoma or the federal government, either one really, could establish um, laws. So, you know, regulations governing, zoning, uh, taxing, criminal procedure, um, whether, whether, the Native American reservation had sovereignty in that area or whether the United States could establish laws and regulations. Um, and so this decision, which was 5-4, uh, it was Sotomayor, Ginsburg, Kagan Breyer, and Neil Gorsuch ruled that, in fact, the treaty that the United States signed with the, the Native Americans back when the reservations were established in the 19th century is still valid and that the words of that treaty hold that the United States doesn't have more or less legal authority over that that part of the state. Um, you know, there's some details and, and stuff, but that's roughly what the case is. And so the consequence of this decision is that for approximately half of of Oklahoma, um, there is uh, Native American sovereignty where um, the United States and the state of Oklahoma as well cannot exercise legal legal authority. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty wild when you think about yeah um, that this is this is a debate going on today, um, and the consequence of this, uh, we have yet to see exactly how this is going to play out but the consequences are in principle really significant oh my god yeah and 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 beyond that the 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 case it was based on if i remember correctly was it was a fairly odious crime and so this was really about whether or not even somebody who did something fairly awful or exceptionally awful that that the state has the laws to uh uh, punish them and and therefore if, if that's the line that's said then who knows what happens to everything below that? And and there's there's a lot to sort through, including when you mentioned that it's it's most of eastern Oklahoma. For those of you who are not aware, like that includes Tulsa, like and that is that is a major population center. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that um, I think that there will be continued um, continued frustration uh, in the state of Oklahoma over this issue, and there will be continued disputes over. Um, how to apply the court's decision, what it what it means. Um, uh, so I don't think we've heard the end of this, but uh, uh, 
you know, it is, it is, and in terms of it being a sort of ideological issue, you know, that the, it's kind of hard to get it, it, it split setting aside Gorsuch. It's split sort of down the, you know, in the way that we think of the traditional left right divide among the justices on the court. But there is a, uh, you know, there is a challenging component to this conceptually when you think about what it means to be liberal or conservative, you know, that, the big question, I guess, here is whether or not the United States government is bound by a treaty that it signed in the 1830s. Yeah, um, I'm not. I'm not really sure what that means from a liberal or conservative perspective. Um, but in this case, you you saw Gorsuch siding um, against the United States government, against the Trump administration, um, in a in in a in a way that I think, for many casual observers, seems unexpected but you know if you also think about Gorsuch's background he's he's from a part of the country and and has a lot of experience in law and a part of the country where land rights and um uh the sort of nature of you know big midwestern areas is a fundamental part of life and so he might you know he he, he might reasonably be understood to simply have been and then following his understanding of the law, given his own his own experiences and 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 view about the role of 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 Native American reservations in in American life. Well, that certainly was Gorsuch's big moment. Uh, uh, did we see anything surprising out of Brett Kavanaugh? You know, I th- I think less so. Um, uh, I mean, Brett Kavanaugh. I think um, he. So one one thing that's somewhat notable is that he and Gorsuch both um, sided with the majority in the presidential power uh, cases. So the the Trump versus Mazars and the Trump versus Vance cases. And, you know, in one hand, I think that it is surprising from the perspective of, again, sort of more casual observers who might think of the court as sort of a nakedly political institution you know, why wouldn't these justices have voted to help the, the 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 president who put them on the Supreme Court? On the other hand, to my mind, the more surprising thing is really the, the votes of Alito and Thomas, because, you know, this is a case where the president was making fairly extreme claims about the breadth of his power and immunity from criminal and congressional investigation. And as a consequence, I think that it's not necessarily surprising that Kavanaugh um, sided with the majority in those cases, despite his history of supporting a very strong view on executive power. Yeah. You know, again, this goes back to that first issue I was mentioning that the the nature of the cases that are coming to the court right now is very different from what we might have seen two, three, four years ago. And so... Kavanaugh's position this year, especially on the matters of executive power, I think are not entirely surprising. And if we saw cases about executive power that look more like routine um, kinds of examples of, of uh, separation of powers arguments in the future, um, that I might expect to see Kavanaugh uh, look more conservative on those issues than he does if you just look at how he voted in these cases. Were there any cases that 
you expected decisions on that either didn't get decisions or 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 issues that uh, uh, did not see any kind of uh, a finality by uh, the Supreme Court? Yeah, you know, I think that um, one area of the law where actually the court did make a handful of decisions, but didn't really do anything super conclusive concerns voting rights. Um, ever, you know, ever since the Supreme Court um, uh, made its decision in the Shelby County case uh, limiting the, the Voting Rights Act, there has been a number of efforts across uh, uh, states, particularly states in the South, but really kind of all over the country, to restrict um, voting rights. And, um, a, you know, prominent example of that is in Florida, where the by popular referendum, they adopted an amendment to the, con- the state constitution allowing ex-felons to vote. Um, but now the state government has thrown up a number of barriers to uh, allowing felons to vote. And the court, the court hasn't really issued a, a final decision on that, but they have have um, essentially enabled the the state to continue um, to continue prohibiting felons to vote for all intents and purposes. Um, as far as this fall election is concerned. And so that's an issue where I would think that the pressing nature of, um, of an election, that people's right to vote being abridged in, in an election is something that can't be fixed, that I might have expected a little more concrete um, and, and firm action on the part of the court than we've seen. Instead, what we've seen is a handful of three or four cases where they've been asked to get involved and they've kind of said, no, we're, we're just not going to touch that right now. We're going to let the, the lower court's decision sort of stand um, rather than take up this issue and resolve it in time for the election. In terms of the politics of it all, obviously the Supreme Court is something that is very, very closely watched. Uh, do you believe or have you gotten the sense in watching the reaction to these rulings that uh, folks who on the conservative side that were very excited about getting two justices put on the bench were happy with this spate of rulings? Um, I don't get the sense that they are unhappy. Um, you know, you don't see a lot of hand wringing right now um, uh, on the part of conservatives about the Supreme Court. Um, I, I think back to John Roberts' decision in the original Affordable Care Act cases. Yeah. And, you know, there was just absolute uproar on the part of the conservative establishment, in particular the conservative legal movement, but really the whole conservative establishment over Roberts' decision. And um, what we what we didn't see this year was any um, any outcry on that scale. And so I don't know, but it's sort of hard to it's hard to understand exactly why that is, because there's lots of possible reasons and they could all be going on. So, you know, they have a conservative president and a Senate that will quickly and without much question confirm basically anyone he wants to put on any court in the country. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they don't have the conservative legal movement doesn't have much to complain about right now. And so if they're losing some decision, um, it's not as though, you know, all is lost for them. They have lots more cases that they're working on. Um, and part, part of what 
their job is to do is to identify what kinds of cases they can bring to the court and win. And I think what we have seen this year is that really they just kind of pushed a little too far. I think yeah. marginally lost Robert's vote on a handful of cases. And so, you know, if, if I'm if I'm a conservative impact litigator, the lesson I take away from this isn't, oh, Roberts, Roberts isn't doing his job, but sort of, OK, I need to be a little bit more careful about the facts that I bring to the court, because this might be an instance where I'm, I'm trying a little too hard and just barely lose. Um, so th- that's my take on the conservative reaction to, to this uh, year's term. I think that the more the more likely opportunity for hand wringing and uproar will be from the from the uh, progressive or liberal side of things. Um, you know, there's been there's been a number of stories already about the role of the courts. Um, in the presidential election. And so I, I suspect that we might be in line for some more um, more extended um, uh, uh, critique from the, from the progressive side of things. Uh, obviously, you are also somebody who spends a lot of time studying uh, policing and criminal justice uh, in addition to your role of, uh, of being an expert here on the Supreme Court, one of the issues that did not get a decisive ruling was qualified immunity, something that we've spent a lot of time talking about on this podcast. Where do you think that decision legally goes from here? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I'm I'm of the view that it is, um, particularly in the context of the Supreme Court, that it is not possible to disentangle sort of the legal issue from the social context in which the case has come to the Supreme Court. Um, and so I, I just wrote a book about the history of constitutional cases where the main claim I want to make is that the, the social and political context of legal disputes shapes the way that the justices even understand what the question is about. And so I think that um, the qualified immunity issue is one where the Supreme Court is likely to be asked to get involved in the near future and that to the extent that the current social turmoil uh, is still ongoing at that point, and that's a big if because things move slow in the legal world and things move kind of quickly in the social movement world. Um, But to the extent that it is still a, a, a salient and really painful issue in the United States, I think that um, qualified immunity is on more precarious ground than it would have been a year ago if it had gotten to the court uh, then. So to my, to my mind, I think that the legal foundations for that, um, for that issue really are going to be shaded by what the nature of the disputes are that form the cases that come to the court. So you know, just to be a little more pointed about it, if, if what you wind up having is a bunch of lawsuits that involve clearly um, illegal behavior by law enforcement officers. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, felonious murder, for example. That's going to be a really different um, context for the justices than if we're looking at something like, uh, you know, destruction of property in the middle of a SWAT raid or something like this, you know, yeah. it's something that it's not good, but not, not as 
not as socially animating as as the kinds of uh, events that have transpired and, and provoked the current uh, the current political debate. So legal minds and activists that are looking uh, for an opportunity to overturn qualified immunity would be really eagle eyed on the specific case that would they, they would push to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I, I would I would advise them to be and I uh, but I don't think they need my advice on that. I, I yeah. expect they will be. You know, in another area where you might think about this also is what's going on right now in in Portland, and um, I, I suspect as early as tonight in Chicago, um, where we're going to see really troubling constitutional debates about the role of the of the federal government in um, uh, in policing local behavior, especially against the wishes of local government, and so. You know that that could be another way in which the qualified immunity um, issue becomes um, colored at the Supreme Court. All right, one last question uh, that is a much more broad one. It is my opinion that in politics, not only is the Supreme Court something that is very forward facing, meaning there's very little deliberation on whether or not you got it right last time. You're always focused on the next justice that might leave the bench and the next appointment that can happen. And the ramifications tend to become uh, apocalyptic on either side because they are good motivators. But that the justices, as they get on the bench, tend to kind of go their own way, regardless of who appointed them. Do you think that as somebody who who watches this far closer than I do, that that is the case, that the judges tend to have their own mind um, or make up their own mind as they go along, uh, despite whatever administration's beliefs were when they put them on the court? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think this is this is actually a kind of complicated issue. I, I don't know that the justices could well be described as changing their views over time. Um, uh, there's a lot of debate about whether that's true, and it's an area where I've done a lot of research. Um, and and I, and I don't think that we really have evidence that the justices change very much once they get onto the court. But what does change is the nature of the the, the legal problems that they get involved in. You know, many of these justices serve a very long time on the court. You think about Clarence Thomas has been there over 30 years. Yeah. Um, that's a long time. And, and so what happens in the world that creates legal disputes and identifies questions of law that the Supreme Court has to resolve, it's very different a quarter of a century after the justices are nominated in the first place. And so who, you know, the, the issue becomes sort of how do you anticipate what these justices are going to have to resolve? So a good example is if you think about Franklin Roosevelt from the 1930s, late 1930s, he was facing a really oppositional Supreme Court when he was trying to establish and and implement the New Deal to get out of the Great Depression. And he ultimately succeeded in making or appointing eight new justices to the Supreme Court. Um, And and the consequence of that was that the, the debates and the legal issues about economic regulation and the power of the federal government in the 1940s were ones that the the Democratic side won in the way that Franklin Roosevelt wanted them to. But many of those justices were still on the court in the 1960s, you know, 30 years later, 
where there's major issues about civil rights and 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 things like that that are coming to the court and freedom of expression, civil liberties issues that nobody in the 1930s anticipated. Um, you know, maybe I shouldn't say nobody. I'm sure there's somebody a lot sure, of them who sure, anticipated sure. it, but but weren't, but weren't foremost. And so, how when you don't even know what questions are going to be coming up, how do you how do you know where any given judge who you might put on the court, where they'll come down. So the best you can do, I think, as a president is pick somebody who agrees with you on today's issues, who seems to be aligned with you, but because you don't really know what you're going to be dealing with, it's, you know, if you see these justices 10, 20 years down the line disagreeing with you, it's kind of hard to attribute that to them changing as opposed to, well, we didn't really know this was going to be an issue. Um, and so I think that the bigger, the bigger source of uncertainty when you're talking about nominating judges is not so much who is this justice, but where is the world headed and what kinds of problems are we likely to see? Um, and so that, you know, if you're really interested in, in, in connecting the judges to the current political majority, then that sort of is an argument against long tenure for justices, but that's a totally separate debate. Sure. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm glad uh, that we had this conversation because I definitely feel a lot smarter on what has happened over the last few weeks. And it is all due to Tom Clark. He is the Charles Howard Candler professor of political science at Emory university. His research of course, focuses on judicial decision-making in the United States, as well as policing and criminal justice recently published a book on the history of constitutional decision-making by the Supreme Court, and he co-directs the Politics of Policing Lab at Emory. Follow him on Twitter, why don't you? At Tom underscore S underscore Clark. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. This was great. And that will wrap it up for our program today. I want to remind everybody that the way to support the show this week for free is to review the program with anything you found helpful over the last few weeks. Do it on whatever platform you want. Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening, that's where your review can help as we move into the home stretch of this season. In the meanwhile, there are some folks that do support the show monetarily, and we want to thank them right now. It's our Titanic $10 tier Thank you to Modesto's own Logan Cisco, NH Blumpkin, Chad, Headphones Neil, Water Ice Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle Age Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Wicked, Uncle Schick, Utah Jimmy Montana, Frozen Summer, Zack and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley Steven, your boy Craig, Troublefilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D Laser, I Poop My Pants, Just Another Pilot, Seriously, I Poop My Pants, Severio, Martin, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Spawn, Jerry, Andres, Archie, Jay Milius, The Jen, Adam, Zach, Olin and Angela, Christopher, DL, Brian, Ryan. Oh my God. I poop my pants.com, which is a real URL. That will take you to my Twitter account now. You guys. 
I've never been more proud of this community. Miranda, Robert, Brandon, John Terica, Glenn, Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Kevin, Dustin, Daycat, Richard, Nick, Mike, Lindsay, Angela, Mateau, Random Complexity, what? Deadman and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to Take Politics Seriously. Dot com. We've already got some good emails for our mailbag episode on Friday. You want to join their ranks with anything that you heard on this episode today. You do so at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Follow me everywhere at Justin R. Young. Until next time, this is your old pal Jerb saying some shows talk about politics. Some shows talk about politics and still more, man. They're talking about politics, but this is the only program that dares to talk about whole three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>